folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, uh, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland, that's my grocery store, and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They aren't doing in-house dining, but you can order all that seven days a week through takeout. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, They've started doing some appropriately socially distanced live concerts. You can also catch most of their performances on live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, folks, so welcome to today's program. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. We're broadcasting from Des Moines. And later in the program, we'll be talking about the incredible uh, protest in Portland, Oregon over the weekend. We'll also be talking about um, the oil and gas industries, industries pending collapse and the downside of that in terms of environmental impact and we'll talk about the nutrient value of your produce and how it declines sometimes very precipitously uh, but first um you know we're going to talk about um urban renewal and america's racial divide and you know looking at the black lives matter message it's pretty clear folks you know that you know it's we, we've got a problem and yet there are still those who insist there's no racism in america and, and I, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure what pile of rocks those folks live under, but um, it, it's an incredible disconnect from reality. And, but, you know, to be clear, too, racism is not only individual acts like the killing of George Floyd. It's institutional. It's institutional, and it's not just law enforcement. It includes housing policy, transportation policy, uh, employment bias, criminal justice abuses, so much more. That's the tip of the iceberg. And I want to give you a, a clear example, specifically New York City's transportation policy under the infamous Robert Moses. So in the first half of the last century, New York's subway system was considered the best in the world. And annual, annual ridership kept going up until about 1948. And then uh, along comes Robert Moses, <laughs> who actually came to power in New York in 1934. And when he finally left in 1968, New York's subway system was quite possibly the worst in the world. And why? Well, because Robert Moses hated public transit. He loved the car, and he loved people who were wealthy enough to own a car. And, of course, that meant mostly white folks back then. Um, Moses you know, helped establish Long Island's Jones Beach, but then, this is incredible to me, he intentionally designed the Long Island Parkway with low bridges so that buses transporting black people couldn't get to the nice beaches on Long Island. And it wasn't just Moses, of course, because back in the day, all across America, so-called urban renewal was the euphemism that mostly white male planners, face it, most of the planners were white and male, they coined this term, urban renewal, to feel better about destroying low-income neighborhoods and often to make way for highways. So one estimate indicates that, that urban renewal displaced more than a million Americans, and again, mostly low-income people, mostly people of color. What, what, um, you know, what, what a lot of folks don't realize or choose not to realize is that the same thing that happened in New York City and in other big cities across the U.S. happened right here in the heartland, including in Des Moines. Joining us now is uh, D'Artagnan Brown. Uh, D'Artagnan is a teaching artist and an outstanding musician. Uh, we've played together. He always shines. I try to keep up. <laughs> D'Artagnan is enrolled in Iowa's Blues Hall of Fame, the Jazz Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got the triple crown of local music halls of fame. Uh, grew up right here in Des Moines in one of, uh, one of the neighborhoods that, uh, again, back in the 1960s, felt the full brunt of urban renewal, a.k.a. institutional racism. Dart, welcome to the program. Hey, how we doing? Uh, we're doing all right. Yeah, you surviving right. the coronavirus age? Of course, my brother. I am uh, still in my uh, house. Thank God, I've got to build a studio here a long time ago when I got back to Iowa. So we're uh, Paul and I are still here, and we get to go to the store early because they let you know folks who are a little older get to the store early on uh, once a month. So we're we got we got food, good. the tomatoes, your tomatoes actually. <laughs> good to hear. In the back backyard. Well, the your okay. tomatoes now. <laughs> so hey, you um you grew up in what was called back then the Center Street neighborhood. Um, no, in fact, let me actually oh. 
correct that? Okay. Because that's a big part of this whole piece. I myself was born in the Walker Street, that is the East Des Moines. That would be uh, Lee Township back in the day. But this was East 14th and uh, Walker. The Center Street was, of course, more well-known in the city, and that was the west side of Des Moines, going, what, from, uh, what, 9th all the way out till I'm not sure. Yeah, it's the, one I, it's the one I'm more familiar with because I lived in that neighborhood for 19 years. But, but both, neighborhoods, both neighborhoods were bulldozed for early yeah. renewal, in this case, the Interstate 235, back in the 1960s. Very, very true. And the uh, whole story of that is, as we keep finding out, those kinds of things, it was a huge uh, disruption. But then again, you know, it all depends on uh, whose angle or whose side you're looking at it from. Because for Des Moines, for the nation, in fact, it was a huge opportunity to upgrade the highways, upgrade the neighborhoods, and upgrade, you know, kind of just rebuild after the war. Well, up, uh, wait, wait, uh, when you say upgrade the neighborhoods, you, you don't mean, I mean, the neighborhoods that were, <laughs> you know, that were bulldozed weren't upgraded, they were destroyed. That's exactly, well, again, uh, if you were the city planner, you probably thought that was pretty cool because now you had land that you could do what you wanted with. Mm, right. But in the meantime, what they failed to always, uh, what they failed to recognize is the people who were there, who were living there, and more importantly, folks who lived there in, in any of those neighborhoods, starting back in the late 30s, Des Moines was started starting to decide in the metropolitan area of the Des Moines proper which neighborhoods were going to be deemed growth neighborhoods ready to be invested in, and other neighborhoods were going to be designated as uh, fallow in a way, or the people who lived in them, in those neighborhoods, were actually called hazardous populations. You're kidding. That was, that was an actual designation? Yes, sir. If you go to the, of course, you have that, that uh, um, they call it the Undesigned the Red Line, yeah. the civic uh, kind of uh, exhibition that talks about the history of urban renewal. Uh, they do uh, bring up that fact that whoever lived in those red zones, especially people of color, were deemed uh, hazardous populations because their very presence made, uh, meant that the land values were subject to be devalued. Right, and we're talking mostly black populations. Well, it's, you know, low-income, low-income white. You know, you know, uh, any other, even, you know, early, early on, uh, Jewish and Italian. Irish, families. Italian, yeah, sure, yeah. Right, right, yeah. everybody kind of has to, works their way up, but of course, as we well know, um, as far as the African-American uh, were concerned, there, uh, there's more concerted, more consistent, more uh, uh, consistent effort over years and years with restrictive covenants and uh, through a whole you know, selection so, tools to keep people out. So how old were you, uh, D'Artagnan? How old were you when the when I two thirty five was built through the Center and Walker Street neighborhoods? That would have been uh, well. I remember myself remembering the upset of it starting in around 1963, 64, 60, yeah, 60, yeah, around there, because I was 12 to 15, 12 to 14 years old, and um, remembering that our parents, my mom and dad, speaking of music, by the way, it's interesting, when you talk about culture, because it happens when urban renewal, whenever anybody, for whatever reason, Whenever neighborhoods and cultures are disrupted, it's more than just moving to a different house. Right. My dad, my dad was an artist, a very talented, you know, great musician, Ellsworth Brown. Uh, we lived down the street from one Ernest Speck Red, who was a legendary pianist. And that whole, the only reason people think of Center Street largely uh, was because of its culture and its entertainment. Right. And that entertainment of the 50s was jazz. So, so a, lot, a lot more than just the houses and the people got disrupted. A whole culture 
and uh, a way of life was disrupted. So in Des Moines, 1950s, uh, late 40s through the 50s, Des Moines was a center. We've got pictures of Lester Young in Des Moines. We've got, you know, all, it was a center. Everybody came here. But then when they broke up Center Street, it kind of like it died for a while. It did not reappear until the 70s. And I dare say, as you said before, you know, I was, I was very blessed to have the people uh, that was Sam Salomon, Del Jones, a lot of people here who we grew up with, and we brought that back in the 70s. You, you weren't here quite yet, but our 70s through 80s were very, very rich in music. And then that went away, and now we're kind of wondering, well, what has happened since then, you see? But let me just ask then, I mean, we, I, we don't have too much time left, Dart, so I want to... I want to be clear. This this was um. I mean, this, this was there was there much opposition, much resistance to what the city wanted was proposing to do back then in building this interstate through your community, or was it just kind in of Des Moines, not, in Des Moines? No, not really. Not no. At my young age, there were. I'm sure there were. I there were definitely people who protested the value that they were given for their homes. And overall, were people were, were people given less value than they should have been? I'm right, yes, in a word, yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's the subject of a couple of st uh, songs I'm writing right now because of that. Because and, that was the fearing part of it, my friend. The people, <laughs> the people worked as hard as they did for the houses that they were allowed to buy. And after then, when they were forced to move, the value that they were given for the, the city place on that home was usually nowhere near what they needed to buy comparable in another part of town. See, that whole piece was just completely mm. perverse uh, on top of a perversion. Because once they undervalue you, the neighborhood that you would even try to live in would be not as good. Or if you tried to move any better, then you would be, they would try to keep mm. you out, as what happened to my mother when we tried to move from, from 1434 Walker to 2723 Columbia, 1964. You were basically prevented from we, moving to that neighborhood? The, the person, there was a person who lived across the street from us. His name is rather infamous in Des Moines uh, history. And uh, he ran a, an effort to try to keep mom out of the neighborhood. Because, because you were black? Of course. Right, yeah. Now, just to show you, now here's the, the thing we want to leave with, okay? This is, yeah, this is kind of a weird, bad story, and it's a lot of, and it's an intergenerational crime. But the reason we're not consumed with hate, and uh, we've had a pretty good time, is because of the strength of our parents, the strength of the culture that we did come from, which gave us the mental um, acuity, the mental strength to understand the only way you're going to get by this is not to hate, but to mm. learn and yeah. to get by. And so that's what my book's about. I've got a book coming out soon that talks about all of this and a lot more. If people want to get a copy of your book, where do they go? They can, D-A-R-T-A-N-Y-A-N, D -A -R -T -A -N -Y -A -N, at D'Artagnan.com. Okay, that's handy. Yeah. <laughs> Dar, we got to run to yeah. a break. Uh, uh, we could talk about this a lot longer. And again, it's a very relevant conversation, especially with the the way the uh, Black Lives Matter movement has has successfully highlighted just the uh, racial tensions well, and tensions last, in our country. One last thing, one last thing. With all this, the, the, the equity that was lost in those transactions in those days went to somebody here in town that this stayed in Des Moines business community and business value. That value is still here. Mm. And so there is a direct line from the business that has been done to the people who were disenfranchised. Think yeah. about that, please. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Okay, good stuff. Hey, Dart, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking to D'Artagnan Brown, uh, a, a Des Moines resident, uh, teaching artist, also an excellent musician, and uh, soon and an author as well. And uh, check out his new book when it comes out. Uh, we'll be back in a minute, folks. Uh, Charles Goldman is going to join us. We're going to talk about the incredible actions in Portland over the weekend. Naked Athena, the Wall of Moms, and a Navy vet beaten by... Uh, by by federal federal agents. We'll be back in a minute with that conversation on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. A quick shout out to a couple of our other local business partners. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk, H-O-Q, Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Later in the program, uh, we'll be talking about um, the fossil fuel industry and yeah what they may be collapsing but they're going to leave behind something that we might not want to have to deal with later in the program we'll also talk with kathy burns about nutritional issues relevant to fresh produce versus old stuff but first i want to welcome uh, charles goldman to the program so uh, charles portland oregon over the weekend fascinating place you had naked athena you had wall yeah. you had wall of moms and he had he had a navy vet who was pummeled by federal law enforcement. It just, it's a, a fascinating escalation in terms of nonviolent tactics and also in terms of violent tactics by the federal government. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this, finally we're hearing about something other than coronavirus. You know, I mean, I have no problem with the coverage of coronavirus, but I mean, it, it's endless as though nothing else is going on in this country. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of people are rightly concerned about what is going on in Portland. You know, what are federal police doing there? Well, and DHS has um, said they're going to send, they, they very very well may send these uh, stormtroopers, whatever you want to call them, to other cities around the country. Well, yeah, and, and, they, and what, what do you perceive is the goal of this? I mean, because in point of fact their presence is making things worse there. Right. Um, you know, the Portland mayor pointed out that if they, if they just left the protesters alone, that they were already kind of losing the energy of the protests, which have gone on for almost two months now. And then, of course, now they had, like, one of the biggest protests on Saturday they've had in, in weeks yeah. because of the uh, social media video of, of these unidentified, uh, you know, federal officers from Homeland Security and the Marsh, U.S. Marshal's and the, office and the border driving Patrol. around in rented, in rented soccer mom minivans right? Yeah. Um, and wearing camouflage and not even following the law, just picking people off the street and taking them to the federal courthouse and not reading them Miranda rights and not so, yeah. treating them as even, you know, the police would normally treat a protest. So, so what they've accomplished is is, is um, inciting so much opposition in the local population, including elected leaders like the mayor, 
the governor, but it, people are suddenly, you know, suddenly these protests, which were drawing smaller numbers, are drawing over a thousand people, and people are outraged. And and the and the tactics that are being employed fascinate me. I mean, nonviolent action always always involves the, the you know just trying to figure out how to get under the skin. Uh, of the of the violence of the system to make your case clear and here we have uh, I mean there were there were lots of things happening earlier in the evening but what fascinated I think a lot of people was this naked woman who appeared out of nowhere at 145 in the morning now being mm -hmm. called naked Athena or well uh, she's being called naked Athena by a lot of people but if you look at the nationalist review um, they, they call her they, they their, their headline is quote Antifa psychopath loses her mind, strips naked to protest, in quotes, Portland police, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> which is just an incredible headline. Well, you know, this, it, it, it's actually an interesting question, which is, um, and, and, you know, the problem I have always with attributing any sort of tactic or strategy to Donald Trump is that he's, he's so, at this point, uh, deranged that I don't know that this is any considered action other than a visceral one, which is that he wants to use his own, you know, personal police to uh, take care of business for him. But I think part of this is, in fact, to generate more protest because, you know, they are trying, it's pretty clear the strategy for the election now is going to be to tell suburban people, mostly, you know, white soccer moms, that the country is under siege from Antifa, you know, that this is a replay of 1968, and that the president should be a re, re, be reelected because, you know, uh, Sleepy Joe is a tool of the fascist, socialist, you know, arm of the Democrat Party, and the president is personally going to bring law and order back. Right, because, fa because fascist and socialist are synonyms, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Right. And yeah. so in some sense, yes, this is weirdly almost going to be like a replay of the 1968 election. Yeah, and well, I, 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 think it's, I think it's a lot more on the, on the table than in 1968. I think it's a lot more unstable? No, there's a lot more on the table. We, we didn't run the risk of, uh, of, uh, of falling into a, some kind of a fascist... Uh, you know, government, but but you know the the table. I mean, the, the stage has been set. Uh, the 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 changes that the changes in how police are militarized um, that allowed Trump to send these goons to Portland. You know, that all started after 9/11, nearly 20 years ago. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, and I and I and I'm I've been amazed and fascinated and impressed with a lot of the tactics that have been used in response. But I, I think um, this woman. Uh, again, talk about being vulnerable. You have no clothes on. You have a mask. Um, you have a beanie. You are totally mm -hmm. naked, standing in front of troops that have been gassing people, that have been beating people, and that actually threw some you know, small tear gas units in front of her. And then she's unintimidated. She's what for? I think about 15 minutes. She's there, basically. You know, I, I'm not, I mean, she never said a word. I'm not, she points at the police. I don't quite know what she's saying in her mind by doing that. But then she does ballet poses, maybe yoga poses. Um, she does all these things that are very um, artistic uh, and very confusing. And in the end, law enforcement leaves. I mean, I, I call that a very effective strategy. Um, maybe they would have went anyhow, but I doubt it because they had just announced Portland police had just announced that everybody had to leave or they would take action. And the action mm -hmm. they took was to leave in the face of this naked protester. And so in, in what sense other than that are you using effective? Um, because it, 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 it's, it's almost like a chess game. You have to find a way to throw the throw the uh, throw law enforcement off its game. I mean, they're, they're used to they're used to violence. These are responding to, they're, they're trained to act in response to violence, and they're trained to act violently. And so you come at them with, a, with a, some kind of a nonviolent action, and they often don't know what to do. And if they resort to violence, I mean, if they come down and crack, if they, if they come after that woman with batons or with um, or, or rubber bullets, uh, 
it would have looked a lot worse for them <laughs> than just backing away. So well, you know, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I think I would agree with you in the sense, especially in light of John Lewis's death yesterday. Um, the images in the '60s that were extremely potent were images from the South, for the most part. Although it happened in northern cities ultimately too, where you know, as as happened at Selma Bridge, um, people you know being water cannon and having dogs sicked on them and being beaten, mm-hmm. you know, as they were down on on the uh, cement. Same thing with the '68 convention in Chicago those images similarly. So I agree with you. I mean, I think those are potent images, and in many ways it it, it may be a miscalculation on the part of the right that many of the same people they think they're going to scare into voting for them to restore order are looking at this and saying, just like they did in 68, that this is such such a mismatch in terms of power and a mismatch in terms of threat to the police that there is something fundamentally wrong in this country, and it, it does, in fact, revolve primarily around Trump and, and his syncophants. Yeah, and, uh, and another angle from what happened in Portland, uh, Chris Davis, retired Navy veteran. Again, a very very different scenario than naked Athena, but here's a guy who served his country, um, was disturbed by the federal law enforcement's involvement, wanted to ask them, you know, wanted to challenge them to d- defend whether what they were doing was c- compatible with the Constitution. And that landed him um, a pretty severe beating uh, and then two pretty heavy doses of pepper spray to the eyes. I don't know whether you yeah. saw the video, but it's... I in- did. And, and I think in, in point of fact, that of the two things we're talking about probably carries more weight with a lot of people than naked Athena. I would say they both carry away, but I agree with you. There's well, they do, but Naked Athena is more like performance art, and you know it, it, the fact that he's a veteran, yep, um, has his clothes on, you know, and just stood there and took a beating. Yeah, that 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 was. I I, I watched. I, I had to. I had to think. How would I respond if I was hit three times really hard mm-hmm. by a, a pretty you know well conditioned, I presume, federal officer. I'm not, I, I don't think I'd be. I, I don't think I'd be remain, remain standing. I think I'd been. I'd, I'd have been knocked over. And this guy just yeah. stood there. The only thing that, that brought him down was the tear gas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my main concern about all this is that if it if it remains mostly, as I said, performance art, which is just you know something to play for the the people in Iowa and, and Ohio and places like that, showing how tough you are on crime, then that's one thing. But it, it, you know, the real question becomes. What about if they do it in a situation where it's not a Democratic governor, not a Democratic mayor? Let's say they do this in Atlanta, where you've got you know a Democratic mayor but a, a Trump sycophant in 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 Governor Kemp, you know, and they instigate a you know new round of destabilizing protest, and then decide that they have to declare you know martial law or emergency conditions. And um, Kemp says, well, you know, the government of Atlanta it cannot manage the city. I'm, you know, just going to declare a emergency and we're going to replace the government of Atlanta with people who answer to me. Well, that's where, the wall, that's where the wall of moms comes in. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, that, that was the other uh, situation in Portland. The, the, um, the group organized by, by Bev Barnum, she's a, a 35-year-old mom of two, and um, she got people to wear moms to wear yellow shirts, and again they had a very, you know, um, non-offensive chant. Moms are here, feds stay clear, and uh, they were somewhat effective at positioning themselves in between law enforcement uh, and a lot of the younger um, um, black and Latino and other protesters who might have been easier targets for the uh, for the feds. You yeah. know, maybe maybe um, uh, an expansion of walls of moms elsewhere. Will help, but I, you know, I don't, I don't, I would not be surprised to see um, what you describe happened in Atlanta. I mean, that's not all that different than what happened in Detroit um, when when this when when the city was unable to, <clears throat> you know, meet um, meet its financial obligations. And right, the state and, and took it, it also happened in you know uh, in Flint and, and other. That's correct. I mean, it happened in multiple cities in Michigan, and that never goes well. Uh, but that that never goes well. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. But I mean. It, it, it is how close we are to structurally, um, 
you know, really moving more and more toward true, you know, government fascism at this point. So, um, yeah, do you, you know, um, and I, but I do think, I, you know, I, I think the, the, the protests in Portland, as you point out, importantly, are not putting people off. I mean, protests which simply become a shopping trip, you know, and looting are not going to play well. Right. And, and I think that people who are supporting the protest need to be really careful about their blind and, and, and far-reaching support for any form of protest. Um, whereas, as you point out here, true nonviolent protest is actually probably undermining what Trump is trying to do here. And, of course, I mean, he's got, you know, Ken Cuccinelli involved in this, who was a terrible uh, AG in Virginia and was, you know, quickly thrown out. But this is this is Steve Miller, Cuccinelli, written all over it. Um, you know, because they're authoritarians, as, of course, the president yeah. is clearly an authoritarian. Hey, Charles, so, we've got to run to a quick break here, but you can stick with us if you like, and we'll... Um, We'll revisit uh, a conversation we had a little bit about last week. Uh, we're going to talk more about the collapse of the oil and gas industry and how um, you know n n new extraction projects really have become economically you know unfeasible. But it's the toxic properties left behind that we're really deeply concerned about. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to the nonprofits that helped partner with us to make this program possible. Thanks to Bold Iowa fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, later in the program, we're going to be talking about uh, an urban farming angle and the issue of nutrition and why it's better to get your crops and plants and whatnot as soon as possible and not wait for, you know, for three weeks whether they be sitting on the grocery store shelves. But first we're going to talk about um, uh, my favorite subject, the oil and gas industry. Uh, Charles Goldman's with us, and, uh, you know, it's been an interesting uh, few months for, um, for the fossil fuel industry because um, they've taken some pretty big hits. There are now, what, yeah. 250 companies they're estimating could file for bankruptcy by the end of next year. That's you know? correct. But, That's of course, in, in, in the way it always works in America, the uh, executives who took those companies into bankruptcy aren't going to walk away empty-handed. Um, and there was an excellent piece in the Times about a week ago uh, pointing this out, um, that in, in multiple cases, uh, the executives walked away with, in, in one case, one company, MDC Energy, filed for bankruptcy, and um, but it did so a week after paying its uh, chief executive $8.5 million in consulting fees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which came out in the bankruptcy court when the uh, its top lender tried to figure out where the assets were. Um, yeah, that, that is, that, that, that's, that's only just barely short of criminal. 
Yeah, uh, Whiting Petroleum, a shale driller in North Dakota. Let's see. Uh, they approved $15 million in cash bonuses for their top executives six days before they uh, filed bankruptcy. And um, the argument they make to this is that, well, they have to come up with this money because they need to retain these executives. What, to for the, for get the, com- the company. With the company going but bankrupt? <laughs> with the company going yeah. bankrupt, they need to retain them? Right, because they've done such a great job. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, of course, the first part of this. The second part of this is the real dangerous part of this, which is that, um, and as I, as I told you, it obviously um, bears on the Dakota Access Pipeline also, is that one of the biggest problems is these companies probably were bankrupt even before the um, gas prices took a dive and made their operations unprofitable, um, in that these companies were supposed to be keeping money on hand to do the environmental cleanups of wells that it would have abandoned perhaps anyway because of decreasing production, et cetera. And of course, uh, none of these companies have uh, any significant amount of money put away to fix the problems that are going to occur from these untended to wells, which are now going to leak uh, methane like crazy. Well, they're already uh, they're already leaking methane like crazy. That's correct, but it'll even be worse. Yeah, there 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 are and three there are three million abandoned oil and gas wells right now, and two million are unplugged. And they that's they, they, they estimate that's esti- estimate the annual methane emissions is one point five the equivalent to one point five million cars. Five million cars. Yeah. That's correct. And um, you know this of course is part of the scheme, which is that. Uh, when you have crony capitalism the way we do in the United States, these companies, as with many other companies, exist solely to extract the profits, but the cost of cleaning up after them always falls to the commons. It always falls yeah. to the American taxpayer. You, you know that politics in America has really gone down when you continually have to, re, have to uh, cite Mitt Romney as a voice of reason and progressivity. I mean, here's the guy who called out, quote, crony capitalism. Um, and also has called out Trump on numerous occasions. But our hero, Mitt Romney. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, and this is, this is kind of the scope of the problem. For instance, there's a company, Extraction Oil and Gas, out in Colorado, uh, which, by the way, uh, maintains a fracking unit right next to a school, of course. Right. Uh, a school, of course, in a neighborhood which is mostly Hispanic and uh, working class. Right. It was originally supposed to be in a neighborhood that would have been nearer a um, more affluent mostly white community, but right. they yelled and screamed, and of course that got moved. And this is out in, I think, Greeley, Colorado. Um, this company only has about $200 million worth of um, of cost to clean up its wells. It's a thousand wells that are now just flaring or just leaking. And um, that, of course, well exceeds the reported liabilities of the company and its assets already. Um, and then you've got a huge company like Chesapeake Energy, which probably has cleanup costs in the range of $1.4 billion. And the, uh, the value of the uh, company on the stock market as of you know, last, the end of last year was $1.6 billion. So this is, this is the game, you know, which is, again, that these companies are profitable and gas prices are cheaper only because these companies are not, they're not having to factor in that if things go wrong, they're actually going to take care of it. And you know how much money they had put away to cover cleanup of their 7,000 wells, Chesapeake Energy? How much? $41 million. Right. On cleanup costs. It's about $300,000 a well to clean up these fracking wells. Do you know Energy Transfer, again, is the parent company of Dakota Access. Do you know how much Energy Transfer wanted to commit to cleanup in the case of a spill? And this is for a pipeline that goes from North Dakota through South Dakota through Iowa into Illinois. They wanted to uh, lay aside two hundred fifty thousand. Oh, I, I would. I get four hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> but even less. Yeah, even less. And to the um, to the credit of the utilities board, and to all the many many people who put pressure on the board to hold them accountable, they they ended up having to uh, lay aside, identify fifty million. But then there was some hedging about that too. Um, whether that could be used for you know, other states or just had to be used for Iowa, <laughs> but um, you know, to to get to bump them up from two hundred fifty thousand dollars to cover liability to fifty million is an indication of how 
either either how much out of, out of touch with the reality they are, or more likely how little they actually care. I I think they just well, don't give a darn. Yeah, they just don't care. They, they don't care. No, I mean this 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 is this is is why you you know you have to look at the bigger picture. I mean you know all we ever talk about is what was the price of gas at the pump, and and versus you know this other alternative energy source, and then. You know, of course, those who are against going to alternative energy talk about, well, look at the subsidies for this and, and everything. But essentially, we subsidize the price of gas at the pump to the tune of probably 4 to $5 a gallon, either through this kind of scam, which is that when things go bottom up, we clean up the mess as a, as a taxpayer, or through the military budget, which protects the movement of, of oil from other places or the movement of oil out of yeah. In the United States and sold other places. So, you know, the real price of, of a, a gallon of gas is probably somewhere in the seven dollar range. Right. Yeah. But but, but the, here here's the other problem too is uh, e even if you can envision that our government is going to uh, you know hold these companies accountable and appropriate enough tax revenue to clean up some of these sites, and we're talking about we're talking about thousands of sites, thousands and thousands of them, even if they're going to do that. You know, even if they agree to that, I don't see it happening. And and again, the estimate of what it's going to cost to clean these sites up is probably woefully short. You know, I, I don't. How do you how do you go in and stop all those different tanks from le all, from leaking methane? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you how do you deal with all the uh, places where fracked water has contaminated lakes and wells and and aquifers? I mean, it, it just the 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 damage is is. Um, is almost beyond comprehension, and I I don't want to sound like a like a abject pessimist, but realistically, the the cleanup tab for this is is almost unthinkable. Yeah, I agree. And then and the process of actually accomplishing the cleanup. Yeah. Meanwhile, like you said, though, some of these executives are going to continue to sit on their their billions of dollars of money that they've quote made, or in many cases stolen. And uh, they're going to get away with it and until we have we need we need an absolute radical change in this country uh, that 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 stems the flow of resources from the poor and the working class to the rich, you know, and <laughs> and also that that stems the flow of our resources from you know from from our land to you know other places. I mean, and I, I look at Iowa as a great example. You know, where's most of our pork going? China. Where's most of the oil that's coming through Iowa going? China. And I, I, I'm not one to, I don't want to be about bashing China, but I do think, um, I do think local you know, resources should support local initiatives, whether it's you know, our land in here in Iowa supporting folks here and in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, there's something wrong with me, Charles. I'm just anti-exploitive. -exploit, I just don't. I just have a hard time with colonialism. <laughs> and it just seems well, like that's a lot of what we're dealing with. Well, I think that, that it's important because, you know, we, we throw around, you know, before, before COVID and everything that's come since and George Floyd, and, you know, I remember they were spending a lot of time talking about whether the Democrats were socialists, you know, and, and even on the supposedly, you know, left-leaning stations like MSNBC, they were challenging the various Democratic contain, uh, contenders by asking them, would you believe in capitalism? You know, and only maybe Elizabeth Warren and Bernie made the point of, yeah, I do believe in capitalism, but what we don't have in the United States is capitalism. <laughs> what we have here is, is pretty close to fascism, and that we have absolutely, as Naomi Klein termed it, we have crony capitalism, which is, this isn't this isn't the market fixing things because there is no risk for most of these companies, you know, and it's true of the banks and the brokerage firms, you know, yes, some of them disappear. They all should have disappeared. And it's true of the, true of the automobile industry as well. Well, although interestingly, the automobile industry, you know, has adapted to the realization that people don't want to drive, at least in most of the world, don't want to drive gas guzzlers. I, I would say that the oil industry, for reasons I don't totally understand, do in fact see the trends changing, you know, and, and have turned things that they used to 
uh, rail against, like safety features, into a selling point. So I'm not sure that's the best example of, of what we're talking about, but certainly oil and gas is, is exemplary of this. And, yeah, I mean, I think it, it brings it home when you realize that if there's a spill in Iowa from the pipeline. It's going to be Iowa's millions of dollars that are going to be involved in trying to clean it up as best it can be cleaned up. Yeah. So how do, you feel uh, the, how do you feel the pending collapse of the oil and gas industry and the abandonment of all these fracking and, 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 and production facilities, how, do, how will that affect the Dakota Access Pipeline? Because right now the status is a federal judge, Judge Bozberg, um, ordered the pipeline shut down by August 5th. Unfortunately, on appeal, uh, the judge ordered that, that the pipeline could continue while the Army Corps investigates the impact on the Standing right. Rock Sioux and, 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 and related concerns. So, you know, that's the, that's, the temp that's, that's the current situation with the pipeline. But given well, the trends, what do you I, think I, is going to happen? What's, what is it going to look like next year? Well, my feeling about the, the pipeline is this. Um, there's no good way to transport this stuff safely anyway. You know, um, railroads are just as bad as not worse. What I would rather see is that all of this reflect the true price of what is being produced. And so that Energy Transfer Partners puts up hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in, in a, you know, uh, in escrow. So the money has to be there to cover the cost of a spill. And then they're going to have to put that charge onto the cost of transporting that oil in their pipeline. And if that, and then it, that's it, going to be passed on to the people who burn gas. And if they had to do see? that, if they had to do that, we would see an, a near immediate end to fossil fuels. Well, then that's, then, then that's the market talking. That's my point. I'm not necessarily averse to the idea that capitalism left by itself, except for, of course, the exploitation of the workers, um, left to set prices, wouldn't in fact drive choices to alternative energy and to using cars that are more efficient than using electric cars. But as long as we continue to do this, it, it's a false narrative and that, that gas is cheap. It's, it's kept cheap to make it appear that it should be used. You know, and so I, if capitalism actually worked to price things rationally, I'm fine with that. But that means you don't get to keep all the profits and then say, oh, I'm sorry, we're out of business because there's no oil to transport anymore. Um, and, and, you know, we've got oil seeping out in people's fields and, hey, tough luck, we're gone. You know, that's the problem. Yeah. Charles, hey, thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, there's more more coming on this, I'm sure. I mean, this is an evolving uh, situation that's going to require some more attention down the road a piece. But uh, thanks for and, joining and, us. And of course, the other important thing is who is naked Athena? <laughs> <laughs> well, she certainly wasn't a prop for the oil industry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for joining us, Charles. We've been talking to Charles Goldman, folks. We'll be back in a minute. Kathy Burns joining us to talk about our this week's segment on urban farming and growing your own food. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper, Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market, serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-table.com.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in today, folks, and thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, one of our business sponsors, local grocery store, and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. You can have uh, have all that through takeout, three three meals a day, seven days a week if you like. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Again, thanks for tuning in today's program. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, and I appreciate the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. And uh, thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. Speaking of Kathy Burns, look what we have in the studio here right now. Kathy Burns is with us. She's, uh, she's with Birds and Bees Urban Farm and a bunch of other good things. But uh, we've been uh, trying to focus on the importance of local food production during this segment of our program. And Kathy thought, why not talk about nutritional value of produce, uh, fresh versus what's been sitting in the grocery store or your, you know, your crisper in your refrigerator for three weeks? Kathy, what have you learned? Well, uh, as we shared uh, some of the information with our workshop participants last week when we had our Zoom workshops, we can't do them in person right now. Um, Eating the food that comes out of the ground or off the vine as soon as possible, of course, gives you your most nutritious bites. But we didn't really, we had never researched how much nutrient might be lost in some foods between when it's harvested and when you eat it. And this is especially true for foods that you buy at the store, uh, as fresh as they may be able to get them. But for a lot of stores, Fruits and vegetables can spend up to five, sometimes seven days in transit before getting to the store, spend several days on the shelf, and by that time, there's a lot of nutrient loss. And yeah, a lot of food. I mean, the, I think the average food item in Iowa, at least, comes from about 1,500 miles away. That's not too impressive for a state that considers itself the breadbasket of the world. But uh, <laughs> 1,500 miles, yeah, that takes a while. And you know, when you get stuff coming in from South America... Mm-hmm. Uh, during the winter months, obviously that's going to take even longer. But um, you know, spinach is a product I've heard. I've heard that if you, if you, if you get down on all fours and eat spinach directly out of your garden, that is the optimal uh, benefit in terms of the spinach plant's vitamin C. We've done that. Well, <laughs> well, not for a meal, but just just for fun. Just for fun. Yeah, but um, yeah, we, we, yeah, if we ever invite you over, come by. hey, you want to come over for dinner sometime? Yeah, we're not going to set you a table. We're just going to give you a kneeling pad, maybe not even a kneeling pad, and you're gonna you're gonna crawl around in the on the yard with us and just <laughs> eat your spinach and lettuce and pull a radish up with your teeth. That's always That's fun. Right. That's right. I know the dirt gets in the teeth, you know, but you can always brush that out later. Anyway, but seriously, folks, I've heard that the, the, the vitamin C loss of spinach over the course of, what, just a day is like, what, 90%? It can be. And, you know, I think, I think I saw more studies on spinach nutrient loss than any other vegetable. I think it's easier to measure the nutrient in spinach, too. Uh, but uh, it's, it's kind of a, a complicated issue, but you, you won't just want to make sure you eat the food as fresh as you can. If you are growing it yourself, of course, you can harvest your food and eat it the same day if you have time to prepare that food and eat it. The two main nutrient loss causes are loss of water and warmth. So oh, yeah. keeping, uh, keeping the food uh, as, as cool as, as possible without freezing it, and then also uh, that helps maintain the moisture content, hmm. and uh, then you're maintaining the, the nutrient level. Water and warmth are overrated. Well... <laughs> The, the That's not quite what you were w's. saying, right? No. Yeah. So, but, but it's not just and with spinach, for example. I know vitamin C takes a huge hit in just the first 24 hours, but there, there are loads of other vitamins and minerals in, in all plants. But mm-hmm. take spinach, for example. Don't some of those um, vitamins and minerals last for a lot longer than just a day? You can still expect to get a healthy dose of them a few days, a week, or more later? You can. And, and the, the other side of this is don't not eat your vegetables because you think, oh, I bought it at the store, it's in my fridge for three days, now it's no good. It's still the good thing for you to eat. It's just not as good as you, you had eaten So it you shouldn't earlier. say, okay, because spinach loses, and, and because vegetables lose nutritional value, I'm just going to eat ice cream. 
I might That's a bad be for idea. that sometimes. But if you, I and I don't like the vegetable ice cream at all. Um, <laughs> but another another trick is if you are even if you're harvesting food or if you're buying your food at the store, if you're not going to be able to eat it because maybe your plans changed, maybe you meant to make a dinner that night and you just didn't have time to prepare the carrots that you wanted to prepare, or the broccoli or whatever. Um, you don't. You can still uh, blanch and freeze that, mm. uh, and keep it. Keep all the nutrients as fresh as possible because that's a method to maintain a lot of nutrient. Uh, it's better to process the food with a blanch and freeze, even a can, as soon after it's harvested as possible, than mm. to let it sit in your fridge for four more days before you eat it. You just get more nutrient out of so it. So you're saying it's better to pick a crop steam blanch it freeze it right away then mm. to let it let it sit in your refrigerator so whatever i mean you're going to lose something in the steaming process a little bit but you lose less than if you let it sit in your fridge for four or five days right and for people who live in huh. neighborhoods or nations where they don't have a lot of access to fresh foods to garden foods and we'd like to work on that a little bit around here have, have more people have more access. But for those folks, the, the concept, well, you know, if they don't have access to fresh, um, it's good that they have access to some canned, to some uh, preserved, some, some frozen foods. So it's, it's good. Eating your vegetables and fruits any way you can get them is best for you. And, uh, and we're, just, we're just trying to make sure that people know how to maintain as much nutrient as they can. So maybe you don't know the answer to this, but maybe you do. Uh, so let's say we've got we got a big green bean harvest, and I can freeze those mm -hmm. green beans, or I got my pressure canner, I can get that out and I can can them. Which is a better which which, uh, which process better retains nutrients? The studies are are a little you know equal on that. The the blanching and freezing seem the food spends less time in the water content right. and, uh, and I think it maintains a little according to the studies I've read a little more of the nutrient um, it does take up some space in your freezer yeah you can't shelf store that and I'll tell you this um uh, frozen green beans from the garden taste a heck of a lot better than uh, a jar of green beans in my opinion maybe others Mine will differ too. you're still okay but there is a, well, I, I believe this is true that overall it depends on how quickly you eat those beans but say you Say they're in the fridge for six or eight months or more. You mean the freezer part of the Sorry, fridge? Sorry, the freezer That's part okay. of the fridge, yeah. Um, <laughs> otherwise known as the freezer. But um, you know, if they're in the freezer for a while, you know, as long as they often are after you've done processing them, you know, I, my, my impression is that that actually uses more energy. So that's, that's another factor to consider is what's the, uh, which form of processing comes with the larger carbon footprint. And in some cases, I think it may be uh, freezing. Rather mm -hmm. than canning, even though yeah. canning has an initial impact that's greater. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, another thing that I did learn about keeping food in your home refrigerator freezer unit is that most of those now are, are self-defrost. And you can lose a little nutrient when your freezer uh, warms the coils in order to keep it defrosted mm. and then then gets it, you know, brings the temperature back down to full-on cold. Anytime that your food is exposed to any amount of warmer air at all. It doesn't stay at that optimal frozen temperature. It can lose a little nutrient. And still, though, let's not have a big guilt trip about, oh my gosh, I opened my freezer to find the ice cream and it warmed up my vegetables. Now I won't have nutrition. You're still going to get more nutrition out of those vegetables that you preserved when they were fresh than later in the year when they're not in season in your local area, and then you buy them at the store, and they've been shipped from how far away? Fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred miles. miles is what I hear is the average. That 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 stat's been on the books for a while. The what eighty percent of the food Iowans eat comes from somewhere else, mm -hmm. because again, we're not growing food anymore. We're growing feed. Mm -hmm. We're growing fuel. We're growing fiber, and we're growing a lot of high fructose corn syrup. Uh, so. Uh, and I don't fault farmers for that at all. I don't fault the farmers at all because the whole system has been set up to make that uh, one of the few viable options for mm -hmm. people. But, but yeah, it's a good point. So the more folks can do to produce their own food, um, you know, and then again, as efficiently and quickly as possible, convert it from your garden to your freezer or your canning jar, the better.
we did pretty well today. We harvested green beans, some of them two days ago and some today. We had, we had them for lunch today. So that, And the leeks as well, harvested yesterday, eaten today. Uh, so we're well, doing okay. Sunday was a crazy day here because we... Uh, well, uh, not only did Kathy make a basket from grapevines, which was pretty cool, but um, we froze. You uh, froze. Well, I, 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 well, I made a, I made a whole pot of uh, a jar of tomato sauce Beautiful. from our first tomatoes. Marinara. Yeah, yeah marinara. And then froze uh, three bags of cab cabbage, a bag of mm -hmm. carrots, a bag of beets, a bag of kale. Uh, yeah, that's some. And again, it all it was all picked the same day, so that was that was kind of encouraging. Just mm -hmm. think that we were maximizing the uh, the benefit right there. So, anyway, a lot to learn. Bottom line, fresh is best. And if you can't get out there on all fours and graze through your garden, <laughs> then uh, then consider the next best thing of uh, eating it at your table, or putting it in your freezer or into a jar. If you do go out on all fours and graze from your garden, send us that video. Yeah, we want that video. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, folks. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. Uh, uh, Kathy Burns has been our guest this segment of the program. As uh, I said earlier, Kathy and Sherry Herdina make up our production squad here at the Fallon Forum. Thanks to stations around the country that rebroadcast the program. You can also check it out as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. And, of course, uh, we welcome you to um, subscribe to the program on Stitcher or Apple Podcast. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, back next week on the Fallon Forum. <laughs>